Well, I pray that we are enjoying uh, the conversations and um, around the, the issues of uh, foundations. And, and I hope that we, I also want to indulge your patience because uh, I know when you have a family series, you have certain things in mind. But we chose to do it differently this time and to go down to foundational issues. And the prayer for us is that if we really understand what went wrong, then we can, un un we can better appreciate the solutions that God is giving us in order to restore our humanity from brokenness to what is normal, you know. And, and, and if we take these things seriously, then the manual, the owner's manual, offers the only roadmap that is credible and viable for the restoration of our humanity. And have no doubt about it, the soul of our humanity is what is at stake. The introduction of the enemy early in the day into the marriage institution, it was his sure way of destroying the human race. And so let me put it out here early in the day that it would be extremely naive for us to think that we can have marriage as an institution trouble-free. It's not going to happen. Because some of those things that God sets in place at the foundational level are going to be the, the staging ground for the greatest enemy attack. Because the enemy is not foolish. He knows, if I destroy this, then my work is done. Humanity will unravel. I don't know whether you've ever seen um, a knitted sweater. Yeah? A, a nicely knitted sweater. There's like a string that is left at the end. If that string is not knotted properly, and your child gets hold of it, and there they are about two and a half, three, you know when they are walking like this, and they take off at a high rate, that sweater will unravel, all of it, in front of your very eyes. That's what the enemy has done. The central building block for the human race is the marriage institution. And don't let anybody lie to you about that. That's why it's the first institution that is created by God before he does anything else. And he elevates humanity at the, at, at the pinnacle of it to take full charge of everything. It's like everything else is created for our pleasure. Of course, for God's pleasure and us as the image being the rulers on his behalf. It's for his glory and for our enjoyment and for our pleasure. And that's why when we mess, then even creation itself receives a curse because it existed for that very purpose, for the expression of godliness through us. And so the marriage institution is a major staging ground for spiritual warfare in terms of demonic attacks. Because it is in that institution where the blessings of God rest, man and woman together. Being blessed, being fruitful, conceiving, giving birth to image bearers. And God's glory being spread over the earth through that institution. The only one that is mandated by the creator to do that. So you can expect that attacks on marriage, redefining what marriage should be, 
redefining the gender distinctives, male and female, that will be the staging ground for rebellious humanity and the forces of the enemy trying to roll back on the gains of God and what God wants to establish on the earth. And God in his wisdom decides that the same institution, you know, I don't know whether you're aware of this, that sin and death entered into the human race through a couple, a married couple, Adam and Eve. You know, these guys had an incredible relationship. I don't know whether you know that. Before the coming of sin, you know, they had romantic walks in the Garden of Eden. Just, just hanging out, exploring the different beauties that God had created. They were in perfect synchrony, in perfect harmony. Every desire met. Every emotional impulse understood by the other person. You know, Eve didn't have to ask, at, oh, oh, she hugged me. Before she even mentioned that, she was hugged. <laughs> every impulse in perfect synchrony, emotional, psychological, and in every area of their lives, their sexuality, their intimacy, in perfection. Beautiful relationship. And that was normal. It was not unusual. It was just normal. They were image bearers. But immediately after the fall, and I said the, the, the key relationships, the most important relationship is the God-man relationship. You break that or you mess that, then everything else unravels like that sweater, knitted sweater. So the most important relationship, the God-man relationship, once it was intact, everything else would continue in, in perfect harmony. But when the enemy managed to persuade Eve using the marriage institution, remember she was the helper created, suitable for him. And, 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 and she comes as that helper. The enemy knew, if I can target the helper, Adam will never fulfill his full potential. When he comes for help, he will not find it because I will have compromised the helpmate suitable for him. And he did it very, very successfully. So sin enters humanity through the marriage institution. And at that point, we must say this. One of the most unfortunate, yeah, that's the age of run, unraveling the sweater. <laughs> now you can, you know, and, 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 and you know, just let her be. Being a grandfather, I don't see the problem with her being here, you know. We can just hang out. Yeah. So those really incredibly important relationships, you know. And, 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 and once, you know, the God-man relationship, the next most important one is the man-man relationship or man-woman relationship. Let's put it that way. So, you know, so that we're not misquoted. It's, 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 a, it's a male-female relationship, that the gender-specific. It's, it's really key um, in, in God's economy. And that's why, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all, with all your soul, and your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two parallels, the God, the creator, and the image bearers uh, equally. If that gets messed up, then everything else unravels. And here is what the enemy managed to do is to have both Adam and Eve gang up with each other against God. Because that's what Eve did. You see, the fact that she compromised herself 
and then taught the man to compromise himself, even though he had received an order, at that point, Adam preferred the relationship between him and Eve to his relationship between him and God. Eve herself is guilty of a greater sin because what she manages to do is countermand God's direct order. In our places of work, if I give an order to Reverend Mwaura, because I'm the senior in the relationship, and then he goes and does exactly the opposite of what I had told him to do, he will be guilty of insubordination because he contradicted my direct order. We understand that at a human level. Do not try it at your place of work. You'll probably be fired. So when Eve decides to contradict God's order or to go against it, she is guilty of insubordination because God has given the order. You should obey him. Not only has, does she disobey him, she also teaches Adam to do the same. So whenever humanity chooses each other in terms of, you know, decision-making, um, and, and, and let me say this, the singles are, you, you know, you're being fettered for your great festival. Enjoy that festival. And, and one of the things that happens is that sometimes, and I said some of these areas that God has blessed us with become the greatest staging areas for, for enemy attack. The man-to-woman relationship is very powerful because it mirrors God's image. So it's subject to God's, I mean, to, to enemy attack. And so there you have our love for each other, our intimacy, our sexuality. Those will be areas of serious attack. And sometimes what happens is that um, a God-loving woman, um, you know, or a God-loving man uh, will at one point sense the pressure of the attraction to, you know, a fellow human being to an extent where they no longer feel the need to obey God. So we have a Christian girl who knows very well that the Bible says that if you are going to marry, then you must marry one who is from the faith. But at that time, the pressure um, and the desire that she has for marriage will cause her to make a decision that countermands the direct command of God and therefore choosing Adam in place of God. That's a bad idea. Because if you disobey God, then you will pay a very high price for a very long time. Because once you're unequally yoked and you're married to that person, you do not share the same values in terms of faith or God, God will still honor that institution because marriage... It's like that. It's his institution. He can't go against himself. You yourself have rebelled. You have disobeyed. But in that relationship, you will suffer. It will be a painful, difficult relationship by your choice. When God decided to dish out punishment, he said to the woman, and this is a specifically um, designed punishment for the woman in her womanness. As a propagator of the species, I will greatly increase your pain in childbirth. Only the woman has the blessing of God to become a propagator of the human species. Nobody else can do that. So it's her great honor to bring about 
others created in the image of God, to nurture them in a special way. The, the miraculous conception and, 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 and nurture that happens in the womb where a human being is you know, incubated to term and then born, you know, and continue a life of their own. So that's a great blessing by God. So God says, in that blessedness, you will have pain. That's your punishment. Then he says, your desire will be for your husband. And, and here we must understand something. As both of them stood before God, their greatest desire should have been God. But in the moment that she chose to disobey God and to doubt God, at that point she made a point that her desire was not for God. She listened to a foreign voice, an alien voice, contradicting what God had said, even imputing ill motive on God, that God knows on the day that you shall eat, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. In fact, if you shall not surely die, you will be like God instead. But we know that was the greatest lie, because they die, and we die because of it. So her desire at that point was not for God. Then she takes and gives to her Adam, and he also eats, teaching him how to rebel. And so God says, you're not desiring me. So guess what? Your desire will now be for your husband. You see, he's the, the next greatest object in God's creation in terms of image bearing. But because you have not chosen me, you're going to choose Adam. Your desire will be for him. The Hebrew uses the word teshuka. Teshuka is desire. But he will not respond the way you think. Because he is now a fallen being, you've taught him how to rebel. Instead of reciprocating with love and desire, he will tend to dominate you in the relationship. That will be his reaction. And this is just a consequence of the fall. It's a consequence of the sin. Because he's fallen, therefore, incapable of responding in a godly way. And so his way of responding is dominion or domination in a negative way. And trying to control the relationship. That's the meaning of teshuka. And so that becomes Eve's punishment for what she has done. And, 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 and again, we think that, you know, if we can collaborate with each other, things will go well. But if we collaborate with each other against the will of God, it will never go well. Our problems begin. Before they were in perfect harmony, now even they are not synchronized anymore. And the minute God appears and asks, what is this you have done? Have you eaten of the fruit of which I said you should not eat? You know, he asked Adam, where are you? And again, we say he's not asking for a geographical pin of where he is. It's not about where he's located. It's what has happened. I have clearly given you instructions. Have you rebelled against what I've said? And of course, he's away and he's in hiding. But he doesn't own up. He says, that woman you gave me. You can imagine the shock of Eve. <laughs> We used to do this when we were boys, uh, and we were three boys growing up very close together my, 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 uh, with, with my two brothers. And, and one of us would come up with an idea of, you know, what to go and do. Usually it will involve, you know, going to the neighbors and, you know, sampling a few things that don't belong to us, you know, whether it's fruit or it's in a shamba or something like that. Anyway, boys are not very clever. They usually get caught. Okay, so once you're caught and you're brought for reprimand to your parents, let's say it was even my idea. But if one of my brothers, if, if dad asks, who did this? And any of my brothers stands and says, it was you. You know, it is, it is Charlie who did this. 
It doesn't matter that it is true. I still hate them. For point, what? Mtaona. You know, you feel really bad that you have been pointed out as the one who, who did this thing. Even though Eve was responsible for the sin in, in terms of direct human relation, she must have been shocked to see Adam turn against her. It's the first time it's ever happened. He turned against her. He, he, he looks different. He points at her, and God is here. God is angry. Who did this? It's not me. It's her. She is to blame. You know, you go for her, and God turns angrily to Eve. What is this you have done? So at that point, you know that things are never going to be the same again between the two of them. She probably senses betrayal, you know, from him, because, you know, she's angry. How dare you report me to, to dad? I mean, he was dad. How dare you report me? And now he's angry with me. And now this punishment is coming to me. How do you think that conversation will go after dad has left? At least trying to come and give her a hug. <laughs> Ladies, you know what you do. You know? There's not going to be peace. And from that point onwards, things will change so fundamentally at the level of even communication. And that's why we are saying the tendency to apportion blame instead of taking responsibility will become a hallmark of Adam. You know? And for Eve, we said her weakness, the tendency to have conversations, that may not be very useful. And conversations can, that could lead to, 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 to sinful ends like she had done with the serpent. At the point that God was mentioned in negative light, that conversation should have died there and ended there. But she let it continue to its um, uh, illogical conclusion that God is not good, God is not to be trusted. So we have to have these, these red flags and know this is our tendency now from this point onwards. And every time we, 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 we are relating with each other, the first place to check is where are we at in terms of what God says our relationship should be. Those should be important conversations for us because the minute we, we, we ignore this and we say, I'm getting along with in age, you know, uh, this guy is not a very bad guy or this girl is okay. In fact, she always comes to church. Never mind that she has come, not come to faith yet. We make terrible mistakes by deciding that our desires are more important to what God commands. And the minute that happens then we pay the price and forfeit the blessings that could have been ours. Let me tell you why um, that is important. And it continues even, not just for singles, into marriage. Because again, God in his wisdom has decided sin attacked humanity through marriage. And through the same uh, institution, God wants to reset humanity into normalcy, back again. And so in, in, in God's, that's why he gives what is, is, is um, an advanced gospel, it's called the Proto-Evangelion, when he says that, you know, uh, I'll put an enmity between your seed and her seed. Um, the seed of the woman will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. The seed is singular, and it goes forward towards Jesus Christ, who will be the seed of the woman. Not he's a seed of the woman, not a seed of the man, because technically Jesus does not have an earthly father. Whenever the word seed is mentioned in any other part in scripture, it will always be the seed of Abraham, the seed of Jacob, the seed of, it is the seed of the man in that sense that propagates the, 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 uh, the species. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, he is the seed of the woman who will crush his head. 
So the enemy also knows that in this marriage institution is embedded within it the power to destroy my kingdom. And so marriage will receive special attention from the devil. Because he knows this is the institution. There is a promise that within this institution will come a seed that will utterly destroy me. And then also later on, they will be through the seed of God. Those who choose to follow Jesus Christ, the families who will choose godliness, who will be able to overcome the kingdom of darkness so that the kingdom of light can be established. And so every marriage in every age receives due attention from the enemy of God's people and the enemy of God, the devil himself. If you do not have Christ in your marriage, chances of making it in that marriage are very, very slim. In fact, I'm just being polite, they are, not, they are non-existent. Not in the redemptive way that God imagines that marriage should be. And so it's a good time to invite Christ into that institution. Only he can author it. Only he can undo the work that the enemy has done from the beginning. And only he can bring the kind of redemption that can restore the image of God in the human race. Those are critical foundational issues that if you ignore, you will walk carelessly into a marriage with somebody who doesn't believe. And the enemy will have not just a foothold, but a whole room in your marriage where he commands. Because you see, if we are both not respectful, if only one party is respectful of the image of God and the things of God, then it will be a very difficult situation for you to maneuver. Especially if you're married to a man who does not believe, he will still be the head of your family because that's how God has ordained things to be. Your desire, Teshuka, will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Now, his rule over you will not be a godly rule. It will be an oppressive rule. That's very different from if you, let's say, for example, um, I wasn't a believer when I got married. My wife was not a believer. Then she became a believer by God's grace, but I wasn't. Now, in that situation, I believe, there is special dispensation that God gives to people who walked into marriage, being ignorant like we all are, and then one of you gets born again or receives Christ. God has a way of working in that situation, whether it's special grace given to the person who has received him because he understands the situation you are in, and you didn't get into that in rebellion. You did it out of obedience to him. And because salvation is personal, you know, you can't get saved for your husband or saved for your wife. But God does give a promise that if you are the believer within that um, environment, then you must continue in loving gestures and living out your faith in a Christian way, in a loving and gracious way, because God says, who knows? that you will not win your husband over because of your godly acts. So God gives you that leeway to be the hands and feet of Christ within that marriage, as though you are in a mission field, and God will work through you as you obey him to cause your husband or your wife to come to faith. And there are many testimonies that that has happened. 
It's different from when you walked in into a relationship knowing that you are unequally yoked, intentionally being rebellious to God, knowing that this is not the parameters that he has set, but now you've locked yourself into that kind of a situation. And I'm not saying that God has limited grace. Even in those areas, he still works. But your suffering would be what we might call self-inflicted. Because you knew it, and yet you walked into it in rebellion to God's word. Different parameters. Where were we? We were in Teshuka. So your desire would be for your husband, he will rule over you. Let me just say by, by way of mention and for information, not everybody um, understands Teshuka as desire. All right? Uh, the word Teshuka as desire, that's Hebrew. The Greek Old Testament is called the Septuagint, which predates the Hebrew Old Testament, which we are using currently, um, goes way back to the rule of Alexander the Great. Uh, what happens is that there, there was, um, after the fall of the great kingdom, uh, after the death of, of Alexander, his cousin took over that part of the kingdom. It was called the Eastern Kingdom, and it had its headquarters in Alexandria. Africa has great history. And one of the greatest library, libraries of the world was in Alexandria. And, and the, the ruler then commissioned um, that the Hebrew Old Testament be translated into Greek because the majority in his area, in that kingdom, were Jews living in the diaspora who, never, who no longer spoke Hebrew. Why? Because these are guys who had been taken to Babylon and, you know, many years have passed. They've lost the language. Now, you know, um, Alexander has brought a new kingdom and everybody speaks Greek. So Septuagint was commissioned by, by, I don't know whether he was called Ptolemy. I think it was called Ptolemy, Alexander's uh, cousin, who took over the kingdom. So it's a very old translation. This particular translation, the Septuagint, um, translates the word teshuka uh, as apostrophe. Apostrophe is the Greek uh, equivalent. Apostrophe. It means answering back, okay, or returning back repeatedly. So for those who use the Septuagint, um, the apostrophe, they, they prefer a different word in the Greek, not teshuka, but teshuba, which is returning back or re responding back. So for them, they see that the acrimony in the, in, in the relationship between husband and wife is that your apostrophe will be towards your husband. That is, your answering back will be towards your husband. Some of the married men might prefer that one, the answering back, because the answering back is not positive, all right? It's an antagonistic, um, acrimonious back and forth in the relationship in terms of communication. The equivalent of it is the dialogue between um, Job and his three friends who come to comfort him but end up inflicting a lot of pain on him because he's telling them, I'm innocent, I've not done anything, but they're telling him, don't kid yourself. There's no righteous man who can suffer the way you are suffering. You are a sinner. In fact, you've been stealing from widows and orphans. You are, you are getting what you deserve. So there's a very acrimonious back and forth. So the, for the, those who go with, a, with, with the Septuagint, they see that part of the compromise of the fall is that the woman will be getting back, lashing back at her husband with her words. Okay? They're talking back and forth. It is a well-established fact that for every 1,000 words that a man, a man speaks, a woman will probably have spoken 10,000 words back to him. Uh, I don't know why that is, 
but women definitely seem like they have more words um, uh, than, than men. In other words, um, part of women's defense is to give a tongue lashing back to the husband. And most husbands would rather receive a physical beating than a tongue lashing because it can be very lethal from the women. And, and somehow the words seem to flow from you guys. I don't know where they come from, but you are fluent in them. You inflict great pain. And at the end of the day, many of us end up at the corner of the roof <laughs> rather than face you and your harsh words. It goes back to what we said. Most of these areas, of course, communication was meant to be harmonious, honoring, and a blessing. But the enemy knows that those are the areas of restoration, and so there will be important staging areas for his battles. And that's why we must rein in our tongues and watch every single word that we speak and to know that if it is not edifying, if it is not building, then cut it off. It's part of the conversations that go too far into destruction. For the man, we already talked about it, and we said it is the area of taking responsibility for things that go wrong and things that go right, knowing very well that there is a role that is given by God to the man that he needs to play out. Now, when the punishment is, is, is being um, handed over, for the man, for the woman, it has to, be with her, it has to do with her bearing children, all right? Again, she is the basic propagator of the species. And for that reason, because the enemy knows that this is one of the ways that God is going to establish his kingdom, his image back to humanity, the area of childbearing will become a major staging area for enemic battle. And, and, and the women will be persuaded that, you know, you don't have to get children. In fact, the role of the woman has changed. It's not that. It's not that important. And there will be all kinds of attacks around this area, but all of it, if you look at the basic building blocks for humanity, is to try and stop the whole idea about propagating the human species that bears the image of God. And it will be framed in clever ways. It's more progressive to have less children or no children or to choose not to have any kids at all. There are other areas of diversity of trying to change even the basic makeup of the family, but all the basic attack by the enemy is in the areas that God has blessed humanity in, in their specific gender roles. For the man, God will look at the man and say, because you have done this, cast is the ground because of you. Out of toilsome labor, you will eat of it. You will work the ground, but it will only give you thorns and thistles. So it has directly to his basic calling is provision as opposed to propagation. And, and in that, then, God puts pain and toil in his basic calling. Again, that will be a major staging area for the enemy. And men will either define themselves by what they do and sink and get lost in their work, at the expense of everything else, or swing to the other side and refuse to work at all. And God has a few words to say, if a man shall not work, then let him not eat. He doesn't say that to the women. 
The women may not work, but they will still eat. Do you realize that? But to a man, if a man will not work, then let him not eat. If a man does not provide for his family, then he is worse than an unbeliever and has denied the faith. Very serious. Because it's tied to our basic calling by God. This is the one thing we have to do. We need to do. And that's the reality. So those are major staging areas for the battle of humanity. Weeds were not meant to be there in, 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 in the creation. He, he says that the, the, the earth will yield, yield thorns and thistles. Those are weeds. You know, plants that are not useful. But they come and they choke out the space, the nutrients, the air, the, the, the light from useful crops. Making our labor toilsome, difficult. We have to do so much work to cultivate what we want. Because God cast the ground because of Adam. Cast is the ground because of you. So that the entire creation, according to Romans 8, is in travail. You know? It has been held captive. And, and it's like a person in agony. It says that it, it, it wants to be liberated into the freedom of the sons of God. But it has to wait for our own liberation because we are the cause. The Bible says that creation itself has been subjected to frustration by the will of God because of what we have done, Adam in particular. And so our yielding, our ability to engage nature and, and get it to yield what it wants has become a toil and a battle for us as men in our basic calling as providers. And we need to know this, that the enemy will use that even for us as major staging ground for enemy attack. Let me just read one text and, and, and then uh, we'll be done. I, I want to, 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 to read uh, Malachi. Or oh, let me read something else. Um, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. So the demonic world is acknowledged as real by scripture and by God, right? So, so, so modernity, again, will try to tell you there's nothing like demons. Those are, those are primitive things. So we act as though the, you know, the devil doesn't exist. And he loves that because then you are not on your guard. But the Bible says, the Spirit clearly says in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Which things? Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Very harsh language. Listen to the two areas of attack. They forbid people to marry, propagation of the species, and order them to abstain from certain foods, provision, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. So Satan is not foolish. He knows the areas that if I attack this, then humanity will never see the light of day. For everything God created is good, again back to creation, creationally, I mean, the world as it exists is creationally good because God never created anything evil, okay? 
until the earth was cast and there are weeds that come to oppose man's labor. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is to received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. That's how we return to normalcy. Presenting everything back to God, the good creator, and receiving everything with thanksgiving from him. If you point these things out to the brothers and the sisters, you'll be a good minister of Christ, um, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Let me still read Malachi as, as, um, as we finish. God is concerned that through the marriage institution, the human race will get a second chance. He wants to press the reset button using the same institution that, God, that the enemy used to mess us up. And that's the wisdom of God. Okay? And, and uh, because, remember, um, on creation, the devil took personal charge to destroy the human race. Nowadays, we can talk about demon possession. You know, demons are junior devils. Eh? You know that. You know, he has a hierarchy. But when it comes to the defining moments in creation, the devil doesn't delegate. He does it himself. The serpent is in capital. In the Hebrew, it's, a, it's, a, it's an actual personal name. The serpent, like the dragon, or the Satan, okay, the deceiver, or the devil, the accuser. It's, it's a definite name. So we have Satan in person, present in the garden, entering into humanity, causing sin and death. The next time we have him taking personal charge is when the second Adam comes to reset, to press the reset button on the human race and restore the image. What does he do? He meets Jesus when in the desert, 40 days, 40 nights, fasting at his weakest and tells him, if you're really the son of God, then do this, do that, worship me, you know, etc. He can't break Jesus. Jesus is weak, he's fasting, he's in human form. But he's the perfect image of God because he's fully obedient to God. And even at our weakest, operating as we were meant to be, we are equal to the, to the devil we, we, in terms of our power to resist. We don't need anything extra. Jesus was a normal human being living in obedience to God, completely reflecting the image of God. And he was able to, re, to, to refer the devil back to the word, it is written, it is written, it is written. And today we are told, resist the devil and he will flee from you. In your human form. Nothing extra required. Just your obedience to God. So he meets Jesus there in person. He's unable to break Jesus. So he looks for a disciple who has given himself to disobedience. Called Judas Iscariot. And the Bible says, Satan entered Judas. He's taken personal charge for the betrayal of the Messiah. The next time we have that happening, again, a defining moment is towards the end during the judgment day. When, when, when he comes and takes personal charge of somebody called the Antichrist or the Beast, one who has completely given himself to demonic um, activity, and he, he wants to do the will of Satan. And at that point, the devil gives him great power you know, so he personally possesses him. It's not demon worship, it's devil, devil possession. 
And the devil is going to try and act through to see whether he can bring about a change in the, in, in the end of humanity in terms of what God has desired. So these are key staging areas for the enemy to attack and to fight with us as his people. So we need to be conscious of these things so that we don't act in foolishness. Malachi chapter 2 uh, from verse 10. Have we not all one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? God is talking specifically to Judah because the upper part, the northern part of Israel, Samaria, uh, headquartered in Samaria and Israel, has rebelled. But Judah remains the godly line that God is going to pursue. And he's going to pursue them because he had made a promise to David, the man after God's own heart. And so through the Davidic line, Messiah will come, salvation will come, and eventually the salvation of all who believe in Jesus Christ. So he's on a track with Judah. And he's concerned that Judah has started behaving like rebellious Israel. Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves. By marrying the daughter of a foreign god. And often God will parallel the faithfulness of Israel in terms of are they given to my worship, the intimacy. We express our intimacy and love for God through worship. We communicate to him our love and, and our dependence through prayer. Okay, that's how we restore the relationship. Prayer is that we depend on you, God. You are our only source. Worship, we love you, God. You are our only God. So that's God, the totality of that prayer and praise uh, equals to faithfulness in God's eyes. And it gives intimacy between the creator and the created. Okay? That same image is mirrored in marriage. Man and woman loving each other, communicating graciously, harmoniously, and kindly to each other. And then, in the bond of sexual unity, they become intimate and then become one in the eyes of God. That's how he sees intimacy. So, this mirrors that, and it pleases God. So, when he's rebuking Judah, he's looking at Judah and saying, you have left me, I'm your only God. You will love the Lord your God, and him only shall you worship. How is it that you have run after other gods, the gods of the Canaanites? And so that would be framed in marriage and sexual terms. You have prostituted yourself to other gods. You have married other gods. That's how God sees it. So this is what he's rebuking them for, for their spiritual apostasy. Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. So I cannot forgive this. Hear this, the human parallel. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and you will because you no longer, he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why. It is because the Lord is acting as witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her. 
though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. So, God is saying, I'm the witness. And I've seen you broken faith between you and the wife of your partner. Of your marriage covenant. He's paralleling that relationship that you're worshipping other gods with you've even broken faith with the wife of your youth, though she's your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. And then listen to what God Has not the Lord made them one back to creation? For this reason, a man leaves his wife, his husband, I mean the father, mother, become, enjoined to the wife and become one flesh. Has not the Lord made them one? Again, listen. You don't become one because you choose each other. You become one because God makes you one. Hasn't the Lord made them one? And here he's saying, I am the witness. So this marriage is beyond you. It's not just a feel-good situation. It's beyond you. It mirrors me. And so I'm the witness and I'm concerned about what's going on. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. So the levels of intimacy go beyond physical. They are also spiritual. They are his. And why one? Why has he made them one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. It's God seeking godly offspring. And I said, those areas that are central to the restoration of humanity will be the key staging areas for the enemy attack. God is looking for godly offspring. But today, Christian couples are marrying and opting not to have children. God is looking for godly offspring. How am I going to be represented on earth by fellow image bearers? I'm looking for image bearers. But the Christians are saying, uh-uh, we choose to be child-free. God is saying, what's child-free? What is that? What is that? What, what do you think your purpose is? Why do you think I created you? Why do you think I sustain you? I desire to, be, to see myself reflected in that image of those little ones. So he says, because he was seeking godly offspring, that's how I reversed the curse of Eden. Because the world is filled with people who no longer bear my image. That's what God is saying. They have rebelled and now they are choosing the enemy. Now, you, my people, I need representation. I'm seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit. It's a spiritual matter. Those lies that we believe, they are spiritual matters. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. So your faithfulness to, the, to your wife or to your husband is a God issue. It's not even your issue. That's a requirement that God has. We're not saying be faithful so that you can be a nice guy or a nice girl. No. So that God's plan can, 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 can take place and be established through you. And then the famous words, we only jump here, I hate divorce. He's saying why he hates it. Because then my image will never be established. And this is the crucible that have chosen the crucible of marriage for re-engineering the human race and you're undermining it. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man, 
A man covering himself with violence as well as with a garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. So it's very clear teaching. And God is saying, this is an institution that marries, uh, mirrors me. And because it mirrors me, when you divorce, you are saying that even for me, because you're, a, you're apostate, you run after everything else, material things and other gods, then one day you should wake up and I'm nowhere to be seen. I've seen, you know, literally, to hell with you. And you know to God, he can say to hell with you, meaning the real hell, you know? Because there's only two choices. You either come and be with him in paradise or you go to hell, literally, that he has prepared for the disobedient. And God is saying, I'll never do that. Why? Because I have a covenant with you. I'm recreating humanity using you. So I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never divorce you. So when you do it at the institution that mirrors me, what are you saying about me? So he says, I hate divorce. It's personal to him. So he says, guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. That says the Lord. So these are foundational issues. We can go and discuss, you know, he has done this, she has done that to me, should I leave him, should I leave her? But it is way beyond us. And I pray that as you understand the foundational issues, the principles that cause God to state what he has stated, that you would take seriously your own situation, that you would evaluate your marriage, you would evaluate your proposed marriage if you're going to get married, who it is that you should get married to and why, and what should be the manner in which you should conduct yourself within that marriage so that you more approximate the image of the one who give us this gift, the gift of marriage, the gift of conception. And we know there are people who are desperate to conceive. And they understand the gift of God that it is. And they cannot believe that those with the power to do it, the privilege, are choosing not to. They can't conceive it. So that you'd hold these matters with the right balance that is required and take them with the seriousness that they deserve. And as you have the conversations, I pray that the Lord and His Spirit will make it clear to you. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you.